Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, committed to researching innovative treatments to address unmet needs in head and neck cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about head and neck cancers with Dr. Artie Bhatti. Dr. Bhatti is an assistant professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery. So why don't we start with talking a little bit about head and neck cancers. What really does that encompass? What kinds of cancers do you see? Because the head and neck seems to be a fairly large area. It is. So we actually treat um, cancers arising in all different parts of the head and neck region. Um, That includes the nose, the lip, um, the tongue, the oral cavity, the back of the throat, the tonsils, um, salivary glands, sinuses, um, cancers involving the voice box and even the skin of the head neck region. So it really is um, um, a few different kind of cancers. And it seems to me that we don't really talk a lot about any one of those individual cancers. I mean, we talk about breast cancer and colon cancer and lung cancer and prostate cancer. How common are these head and neck cancers? So a lot less common than, um, you know, that it's a lot less common than the breast and the colon and the lung that you mentioned. Um, We diagnose about 70,000 new patients annually in the United States. It is a lot more common and a much bigger uh, burden out in the East uh, where a lot more of these cancers are diagnosed. So for instance, it's the number one killer in uh, Southeast Asia where we have a lot more um, oral tobacco chewing uh, that is cultural over there. Um, In the United States, it is about 70,000 new cases, and we do have a high cure rate, so about 65 to 70 percent of our cancers do get cured. Um, And I think that accounts for why you don't hear a lot of it in the media. Um, It is not among the most fatal cancers. Yeah, that brings up a couple of really good points. The first is, tell us a little bit about the risk factors. I mean, when you said that it's far more prevalent in Southeast Asia with oral tobacco, mm-hmm. makes me think that oral tobacco is one of the risk factors for developing these cancers. Tell us more about the risk factors that may be prevalent not only in Southeast Asia, but also here. Right. So historically, most of these cancers were associated with tobacco and alcohol use, excessive use um, of tobacco and alcohol. Um, In recent decades, we're seeing um, an emerging incidence of HPV-associated head and neck cancers. So human papillomavirus is the same virus that causes the cervical cancer in women um, and is increasingly causing um, oropharyngeal cancers, the cancers involving the tonsils and the back of the throat um, in younger men, typically. A lot of these patients tend to have never smoked or never have used alcohol excessively, uh, but do have HPV in their tumors, so that is an associated uh, with the virus. Um, fortunately, these tumors, the ones that are HPV-associated, tend to respond better to treatment and have an overall better prognosis than the historic tobacco and alcohol-related tumors. So aside from tobacco and alcohol and HPV, are there other risk factors? So if somebody says to you, look, I've never smoked, mm-hmm. I don't drink, And HPV is a sexually transmitted disease, and I haven't had oral sex. 
um, are they pretty much immune to head and neck cancers or are there still other etiologic agents that might be at play? There are other less common factors. So these three are by far the commonest three um, etiologies for head and neck cancers. But uh, patients who've had um, solid organ or bone marrow transplants tend to be on long-term chronic immunosuppression. Um, and that is a risk factor for developing squamous cell cancers of the head and neck region, even of the skin. Um, and, you know, we also see some de novo mutations in patients who have none of these risk factors. Uh, commonly, this happens to be of the TP3, TP53 gene. Mm-hmm. Uh, a mutation in that gene turns off the normal tumor suppression response of the body. Um, and we can see head and neck cancers form in that situation as well. So, so, so different etiologic um, agents can cause it. But mm-hmm. I mean, it seems to me that the most common ones are really things that are within our control. Absolutely. Now, just to clarify, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are thinking, okay, how much is too much alcohol? What would you say? Every drink is too much. (laughs) So um, recently, there was actually a study, which was widely publicized in the media, too, where even one drink of alcohol has an impact on our lifespans. Um, And that could be due to multiple factors, not just forming head and neck cancers. Um, In general, though, we define too much drinking as more than um, three drinks at a time for men and two drinks at a time for women. That has been the historic definition. Um, But, you know, we do see cancerous form in patients who haven't drank even that much or smoked that much. We have many patients who've had maybe five-pack years tobacco exposure in their lifetime and still form these head and neck cancers. So I would say even one cigarette is too much and one drink is too much. Okay. But smoking and drinking are things that are within our control. Mm -hmm. HPV, it seems that that also might be within our control, at least in part. Is that right? Uh, In a large part, yes. So we have a very effective HPV vaccine now. Um, It provides protection against nine strains of the virus um, and is very effective at preventing cancers of the cervix for women, um, cancers of the head and neck region, and the anal genital region for men and women both. Um, It is FDA-approved. the, you know, the, the Cancer Society's FDA and CDC recommend two shots of the vaccine starting at ages 11 to 12 years. Um, men can continue to get vaccinated until the age of 21 years, and women um, can get vaccinated until the age of 26 years. These were the initial guidelines. Uh, but as of late last year, the FDA has expanded its use um, of this vaccine, and the age cutoff is now 45 years. So anyone who missed the initial age cutoff of the 21 and 26 years um, is eligible to get the vaccine if they're within the 45-year cutoff. So we recommend um, anyone who is eligible for the vaccine to go call their PCP, set up an appointment, and get your two shots of the vaccine because it's uh, a big bang for your buck. And, you know, I think I I really want to unpack that a little bit more just because there's been a lot in the media, in the lay press about vaccines and um, problems with vaccines. Have we seen any side effects to the HPV vaccine that might be untoward? 
So it is a, it's among the newer vaccines. Um, I can't say that I have seen anything specific against the HPV vaccine, at least in discussions with people whose kids were vaccinated um, or my own patients, some of whom went on to get vaccinated because they were young and within the 45-year cutoff in the past few months now. Uh, but in general, um, you know, I have kids who've gotten other vaccines and I haven't had any issues. And obviously, the vast majority of people who get vaccinated against preventable diseases um, don't develop any issues with vaccines. Um, and they offer a lot of protection against a lot of lethal diseases. So um, it is something that's valuable. And you mentioned that your patients had gotten the HPV vaccine. So can you get vaccinated even after you've had uh, an, a head and neck cancer? Absolutely. There's no downside to it. Uh, most of the head and neck cancers are caused by the HPV-16 strain. That's one strain of the virus. Um, the vaccine has nine strains, um, so it would still offer protection against um, um, benign and malignant forms of the virus, which could cause things like genital warts, um, anal cancers, penile cancers for men, cervical cancer for women. So absolutely, you've had the one cancer which was caused by one strain of the virus, but you could still go on and get the vaccine and get protected against other strains of the virus. So if it is fairly innocuous in the sense that it doesn't have a lot of side effects mm -hmm. and there's really not a lot of downside... And it is protective against many different kinds of cancers as well as benign conditions. Why the age cutoff? I mean, so say you had a patient or an individual in your practice or say one of our listeners is listening and is 47 years old. So just outside of the cutoff, but it would be denied the vaccine, whereas if this person had you know, if the guidelines had changed just two years earlier, may have been eligible. What's the rationale behind that age cutoff? Right. So the vaccine is um, going to be effective only if you haven't been exposed to the strain of the virus. Um, so, for instance, if you were um, sexually active in your teen years and you acquired a particular strain of the virus, um, you went on to get the vaccine, it is not going to offer you protection against that strain uh, because your body's already been exposed to that virus. Um, so the thinking behind those guidelines was that the older you get, the more likely you are going to acquire different strains of the virus, which is out floating in the community, um, and the less beneficial the vaccine is going to be to you. Um, so to make it the most make the most financial sense out of it, I guess there has been an age cut off. Um, if you wanted to go get the vaccine, though, beyond the 45-year age cutoff, you could definitely get it. The only thing is the insurance wouldn't pay for it. Mm. Interesting. So let's move a little bit from prevention to treatment, because the, the other thing that you mentioned, which I thought was really heartwarming to hear and something that we don't always hear on this show, is how treatable head and neck cancers are. Talk to us a little bit more about that and why that is. Is it because we can find these cancers really early? Is it because they are really indolent? What's Why is it that we are so successful in head and neck cancers, but not so successful in other cancers? 
Right. So, you know, as you can imagine, the head and neck is a very tight compartment. Um, you know, we have a lot of critical structures kind of squeezed into a small area relative to the other parts of our body, like our chest or abdomen. Um, so any symptoms that we have developing in the head and neck region tend to manifest early and people tend to notice early. Um, so, for instance, if you have a lingering mouth sore, you're going to you're going to think, gee, this has been around for a few little while now and I need to go get it checked out. Um, or if you've had a sore throat or a hoarse voice or a difficult swallowing that's bothersome, um, that's lingering longer than a typical cold would, um, again, those are things you're going to go get them checked out earlier rather than later. Um, and that's the reason most patients present to us with symptoms early on and in a stage where we can still attempt cure. So 90% of head and neck cancers actually present at a curable stage, only 10%. Um, are indolent and have spread before um, they were they presented to us. Um, and that accounts for the higher cure rate we see with head and neck cancers. You know, but it sounds to me like a lot of those symptoms are symptoms that you could have. And if you are doctor phobic, mm -hmm. and, and I know some people who are, in fact, I might be one of them, um, you know, you're going to avoid going to the doctor, even if you've got a little bit of a sore throat, you're going to say, well, you know, I talk too much and I've been, you know, running too much and it might be a flare up of my asthma and, you know, I had a cold last week and I can think of a million excuses, trust me. So um, how is it that we can differentiate all of those symptoms from no, you know, I really ought to get this checked out. Yes. So, you know, a lot of patients actually do neglect their symptoms for a while, but it's when they don't go away over many weeks, many months, and that's when they go get it checked out. Uh, sometimes they'll also present with neck lumps because the cancers tend to spread early to um, regions in the in the neck, to swell to glands in the neck. Um, and that's when people go get them checked out, and that's how they get picked up on and worked up for their symptoms. So you certainly can't avoid the doctor forever when you've got those symptoms. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break for a medical minute, but please stay tuned to learn more about head and neck cancer with my guest, Dr. Artie Bhatti. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a global biopharmaceutical company that is committed to bringing immuno-oncology to people living with earlier stages of cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Arti Bhatti. We're talking about medical advances for patients with head and neck cancer. And right before the break, Arti was telling us about how about 70,000 people in the United States will be diagnosed with head and neck cancers, but the vast majority of these present at an early stage when they're curable. Now, Arti, I had a question about that. You used the word curable. That's not a word we use a lot in cancer. Do you really mean cure, like gone forever, like never to come back again? Right. So that's the advantage of an early diagnosis. Um, Our all-comers cure rate is about 65% at five years, meaning that 65% of people um, diagnosed with any stage of head and neck cancer um, and treated for it five years out will have no evidence of the disease. So yes, it is a potentially curable disease. And so part of that really comes with early detection. And while we talked before the break about, you know, knowing symptoms, if you have a nosebleed or a mouth sore or hoarseness or a neck lump or you have difficulty swallowing, you should go and see your doctor. Are there things that we can do even before we have symptoms? I I know that uh, there are some screening programs and clinics and so on. Yes. Should, Should people go to those screening things? And if so, should you do it just whenever there happens to be a health fair in your neighborhood? Or are these things that you should be doing on a every X period of time basis? So anyone who's high risk, um, you know, if you know you've had an extensive alcohol or tobacco exposure, or if you've had a partner who's had um, HPV detected, um, you should absolutely go get checked out at a frequent interval. Um, So we have screening fairs that our team carries out at the main campus at Yale, as well as in the community. Um, They're pretty often. They're at least a couple times a year. Um, And even if you went and got yourself checked out there, that would be adequate screening a couple times a year. There isn't an established guideline on how often you need to get screened. uh, But as long as you keep a careful check on things and your primary care or your ENT or your dentist is evaluating you, um, that should that should be sufficient protection. Uh, the number one thing, though, is to quit the high-risk behaviors. So you want to quit smoking, quit drinking if you think you've been doing too much of it. Yeah. The issue is that people who often are doing too much of it don't think that it's too much. That's true. <laughs> and, and, and those are difficult habits to quit. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, quitting smoking is one of the most difficult things ever. And, you know, drinking is so much part of the social milieu um, in our society. Do you have any tips for what you tell patients in terms of that? Do you tell them to aim for abstinence totally? And and are there are there things that they can do or programs that might be helpful that are out there in the community? So we have a very active social smoking cessation program at Yale. Um, and they provide a lot of biofeedback mechanisms, meaning they take points in your own health chart um, that may be attributable to smoking and alcohol. And this is even before cancer is ever formed, so before you've actually developed a cancer. Um, And they show you how you know, after you've abstained from the high-risk behavior, from either the smoking or the alcohol for a certain period of time, how these points in your chart, in your health chart, are getting better. Um, That is motivation for a lot of patients, I know. Um, That keeps them, you know, able to refrain from going back to smoking and drinking. Um, Outside of that, 
I know it's hard to completely quit alcohol. I mean, I drink, so it's hard for me to say you should never drink. Uh, but I do think we need to know our limitations and stick to those if we want to live a long and healthy life. Yeah. You know, the biofeedback is really interesting to me. I, I, I know that certainly this is something that we know cognitively, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you study hard, you get a good grade on a test, you then want to study hard so that you can get the next good grade. Right. You're eating well and exercising, you see the scale moving in the right direction, you think, yay, I'm losing weight, and so you want to diet and exercise more. So healthy kind of feedback. What are what are the things that they look at in our chart, in our medical record, that um, can correlate with smoking and, and alcohol? Like, do they look at blood tests, or is it your blood pressure or? Yes, it could be things like your blood pressure. It could be an impact on your cholesterol levels. Um, it could be impact on inflammatory markers. So telling us that your body is so inflamed from all the tobacco and alcohol it's been exposed to and showing us how those markers continue to fall as you stay away from the alcohol and the tobacco. You know, I think that that is so incredibly powerful, especially when you can see it in real time, mm -hmm. because it must be so hard to tell people, quit smoking, quit drinking. And then maybe, you know, decades and decades down the line, you will have reduced your risk of developing head and neck cancer. And I know many people might say, yeah, but I might not have ever gotten head and neck cancer anyways. But when you can actually see it mm -hmm. making a tangible effect on on a marker. Yes. Um, I think that would be so incredibly powerful. Right. No, it is. It is more immediate gratification for your efforts. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about treatment. So we talked about prevention and risk factors. We talked about screening and finding these cancers early. But what happens when somebody actually does present? Okay, so now somebody comes. I had a friend um, who, uh, you know, called me up and said, you know, I was having these nosebleeds and mm -hmm. they just didn't stop. And so I said, well, you know, you probably should go and have that checked out. And he did. And it he, turned out that he had um, a cancer in his nasal sinus. Mm -hmm. um, so, so tell us a little bit more about how that diagnosis is made, that or any head and neck cancer, and then the treatment regimens um, and, and how effective they are. Right. So the diagnosis for any cancer really is initially made by a biopsy. So if you present with a nosebleed, like in the case of your friend, um, he probably went to an ENT and had a little scope, which is like a little tube being passed up his nose. Um, and they probably found a suspicious lesion in his sinus. Um, they take a little needle and they take a sample of that of that mass, um, and then a pathologist will look at it under the microscope, and um, if he finds cancer cells, try to identify where that cancer might have originated from, um, and in his case, it probably would have originated from the sinus, because remember, cancers can go from another site to other sites as well, um, so we want to make sure that we're finding a cancer that has started there and hasn't spread from somewhere else. Um, so that process is called a biopsy, um, and any cancer gets diagnosed only after a biopsy. Um, treatment of the head and neck cancers depends on what stage it is. And without going into the nitty gritty, it really depends on what size it is and has it already traveled to nodes, to glands in the neck region. Um, if, it is if it's a small primary tumor which hasn't yet traveled anywhere else, we will typically try to take it out with surgery um, or we will radiate it um, at that spot. 
Um, if it has already traveled to neck nodes, we could still use surgery and radiation, but we will typically also involve chemotherapy at that point, uh, typically in combination with the radiation. So it's more of a multimodality approach. Um, and then cure rates depend on the stage. So if you have a very early stage tumor which hasn't yet traveled to neck nodes, our cure rates are as high as about 80%. Um, the cure rates are driven down a little bit if you have disease in the neck nodes, at which point it is about 50 to 60%, um, and then lower if disease has already traveled elsewhere, um, like to distant sites like the lungs or the abdomen. Well, I mean, I think the one good thing to for listeners to take home is, you know, even if this has spread outside of one small little area, so let's say it has gone to a neck node, you can still be totally treated with this Absolutely. with a reasonably good cure rate. The number of patients I have... Um, and I don't do head and neck cancer, as you know, I do breast cancer, but who get very scared if, if the cancer has gone to a lymph node. But actually, the survival rates are really good with current therapies. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know... Another point to note is that when we stage these cancers in the head and neck region, if you have disease that's traveled to neck nodes, we might call it a stage four. But a stage four in head and neck cancer is not the same as a stage four in other cancer types where we're talking about distant disease that is now not curable. So I always tell my patients that don't be afraid of the number. We call it a stage four, but we are still going to try and cure this, and your odds for cure are actually pretty high. That's a great point because I think a lot of people, when they hear stage four, they mm -hmm. think distant metastatic disease, cancer all over my body, game over. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Absolutely in not. It doesn't apply for head and neck. And the other thing, getting back to the case of my friend, so he had a, a poorly differentiated sinonasal uh, cancer. And it was in a location where, while initially, some people were thinking about doing surgery. He went and got a second opinion, and they said, well, you know, given its location and given its features, chemoradiation may be better. Um, he ended up having the chemoradiation, and the thing disappeared completely. So talk a little bit about the effectiveness of multimodality care, even in unresectable disease, and whether you think that getting a second opinion is worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, multimodality care is, um, you know, it's really the backbone of treating head and neck cancer. So in instances where we can't do surgery, like I suspect in his case, the tumor might have been very close to the eye and taking it out might have involved taking out the eye. Um, in those instances, we do try to save the eye because that's a critical organ. Um, and we treat it with chemotherapy, follow it with chemoradiation. So we use other modalities then to try and spare people from getting surgery. Um, a similar situation applies in the case of voice box tumors, where um, um, initially, many, many decades ago, the standard treatment was to take the voice box out. But then it rendered people voiceless for life, and that isn't a situation most of us would want to live with. So we developed using concurrent chemotherapy and radiation and figured that about 70% of these patients will be cured without ever needing surgery. Um, so that was a significant advance. So multimodality therapy is absolutely key to treating these cancers. Um, getting a second opinion is also something 
that's very personal, I think. Um, so if someone is very comfortable with their care team and feels like they wouldn't want to go anywhere else and they trust their team um, and don't feel like getting a second opinion, that is totally fine. But then in instances where decisions are tricky, uh, if you're not com comfortable or don't have that trust in your team um, and you feel like you would want a second opinion, absolutely. I always recommend my patients do what makes them feel more comfortable um, because ultimately it is a life-changing diagnosis and treatment. Right. And I think the other thing about second opinions is really, you know, it's not so much not feeling comfortable with your team, although certainly that would be a big red flag. If you mm -hmm. don't feel comfortable with your care team, mm -hmm. get a second opinion. But even if you do, sometimes it's nice to go to a different center, a larger center, an academic center, whatever, just to see whether everybody is recommending the same kinds of things, and also to think about whether there may be clinical trials that may be offered where those may not be available in a local setting in a smaller center. Right. Um, Talk a little bit about advances that you've seen over the last few years in terms of treatment for head and neck cancers and, and any interesting or novel modalities that are on the horizon, any clinical trials that are interesting that people may not have been aware of a few years ago. Right. So there have been several advances, not just in um, in the development of new drugs, but also in newer surgical and radiation techniques. So we now have minimally invasive robotic surgery, as I'm sure you know, um, and that has you know drastically cut down on recovery times for patients um, who need surgery for head and neck cancer. We've also refined radiation techniques, so it, you know the fields are a lot smaller now than they used to be many years ago, um, and people have lesser issues with swallowing and speech after they've gotten treatment for head and neck cancer. Um, on the medical side of things, we have a lot of newer drugs now. So targeted drugs, cetuximab, immunotherapies, they've all been recently approved. Um, and we have upcoming trials, which are looking at combining different drugs and testing newer drugs, targeted drugs, um, all with the hope of improving survival for our patients. Dr. Ardi Bhatti is an assistant professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.